On this edition of the Scott Radley Show, we are taking our last stab at the election, at least until this government falls in a few months or a year or so, and we'll be right back at it. But anyway, we'll wrap it up for tonight. We're going to be chatting about what is going on out west. We may not fully grasp here in this area of Canada, this part of Canada, the level of anger that seems to be percolating west of us. But boy, oh boy, is it ever real. We're going to be chatting about how how angry things are and whether it's fixable. We'll be talking about that. Uh, also chatting with Scott Duval, who won the Hamilton Mountain Riding yesterday on on during the election. Um, interesting riding, very, very solid NDP. Not a whole lot of drama there, but a guy who is back as one of the five Hamilton ridings that did not change hands on election day. And we are going to be chatting about athletes, artists, singers. Should they be politically active? Should they be on Twitter? Should they be on Instagram making political statements? Or should they be doing what they do, which is to entertain us and say, leave that stuff to other people? Two very different points of view. Lots of people have thoughts on this. But when you see what happened to LeBron James the other day with his tweets about Hong Kong and China, does it change the view about whether or not athletes and artists should be venturing into this stuff or not? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, You may have heard about the anger out west that has been brewing and festering and simmering through this election. Actually, before the election, it was already there. But as the election moved on, it only seemed to build. And then when the results came through last night, uh, well, if you thought the result of a minority government would be somehow placating those out west and making them all feel better, uh, you haven't really been paying attention, I don't think. The headline on my next guest's election night piece in the Edmonton Journal was Federal Election, a Kick in the Shins to Alberta. Uh, yeah, they're not happy out there, I don't think. David Staples is a columnist with the Edmonton Journal. He joins us now. David, how are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for taking the time today. Uh, reading your piece and reading a lot of other pieces and listening to people on the radio and some people doing TV hits from out west, uh, would it be a fair interpretation that the election didn't quite solve all all the problems of the west? <laughs> Yeah, that was going to be a challenge anyway, even if there had been a conservative majority. Uh, This would be a challenging thing. The fundamental issue for Alberta is pipelines. Um, The Alberta oil and gas industry is this huge industry, the biggest export industry in Canada. I believe it's responsible for 10% of our GDP. But we're we're bottlenecked right now. Um, Environmentalists from U.S., often funded by U.S. organizations, have given a lot of money to the um, groups to block the pipelines, uh, both environmental groups and native groups, and they've been successful largely through the courts. So this is hugely frustrating for Albertans, and it's slowly being resolved through the courts. And we've got a lot of our hopes pinned on the TMX pipeline, the Trans Mountain expansion. And the, the, the worry is that although the Liberals bought that pipeline and seem committed to building it, through some good work through by Edmonton's Amarjeet Sohi in consultation with the First Nations. Um, the fear is that the Liberals will have to get support from the NDP and the Greens, who are steadfast against TMX. Because Sohi got voted out, right? Sohi got voted out. I, I would have voted him in personally. I think he did fantastic work. But that wasn't the will of the voters. He got voted out. The, the, there's so much hostility towards the Trudeau Liberals because they failed on other pipeline projects and were lukewarm on 
on other pipeline projects, kind of left Canada with one option, TMX, and then had to buy it when it was going to fail. So there's he so he suffered because of that. So the, but the fear now in Alberta is that this new kind of stew uh, at Parliament is is going to make it impossible for maybe even TMX to go ahead. Although I, I think that it's far enough along that it will go ahead. And, and once that pipeline gets going in Line Three, which is another huge pipeline from Alberta to um, um, the Midwest states and uh, Keystone XL, which is down to um, Houston. Um, Alberta's problems, pipeline problems, are going to be solved in the short term. Um, so that's. But will that solve the anger? Results. We need to see it. Will that solve the anger, though? Because I, I get the impression, and you're there, I'm not. I'm looking at this as from the outside, obviously. But I get the sense right now that the name Trudeau is so toxic in the West that even if he were to drop a trillion dollars and say build a hundred pipelines, you might be happy with it, but there's still not going to be a sense of satisfaction with this government. Listen, there's a fundamental issue right now between, uh, uh, I don't know if it's just Alberta but or the rest of Canada, but between Alberta and Quebec. Albert, Quebec gets $13 billion a year in equalization from the rest of Canada, largely funded by Alberta taxpayers. And, you know, I, I think Albertans are okay with that, paying that bill so Quebec can have their nice, you know, public services. But when, when the biggest applause at the Bloc Quebecois rally last night is for no Alberta pipelines, no Alberta oil yep. in Quebec, I'll tell you what, that, even talking, I get angry. That makes me angry. When there's that amount of kind of obtuse ingratitude and misunderstanding about the benefits that they get from, from Alberta oil and gas in Quebec, and they are so intransigent, intransigent against Alberta in that way. I just think this is a this is a fundamental problem in Confederation, and maybe there's a way around it by having Alberta oil go in other directions, um, so you don't have to put we don't need to get pipelines through Quebec. Uh, all that would be a great Canadian solution to our energy issues, but um, that that really is a red button issue for Alberta and. Trudeau needs to get pipelines going in other directions, um, both to the United States and to the BC coast in order to solve that, because um, he doesn't want to take on Quebec in that regard. Um, But Albertans are absolutely fed up with Quebec. Well, but you know, in his speech last night, Justin Trudeau said, you guys matter. You Alberta, you matter. (laughs) I'm sure that that assuaged everybody out there to know that you matter. (laughs) You know what? And, and, And to give the Liberals credit, they um, they bought TMX for four point five billion dollars when it was failing and when it was the project was dying and I think Amarjeet so he did a fantastic job on First Nations Indigenous consultation. It's gonna I think it's going to pass the courts and we'll see then if Trudeau then has the resolve to make it go through. But there's there's a couple other issues. There's the new process Bill C sixty nine which is the new Industrial Assessment Act and a Quebec um, Liberal M um, candidate who's now been voted in former Greenpeace activist, he basically said what Albertans have been saying, that that bill will mean no more new pipelines. That's the effect of Bill C-69 because of climate, the new climate change regulations. Under C-69, there will be no more pipelines. This is what Albertans said throughout the whole process of C-69 debate when we were objecting to it, and the Liberal candidate admitted it. He let the cat out of the bag. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I, I really don't believe that as we sit here in Ontario in the Hamilton area, I don't really think that we get it, and which is why I wanted to have David on here, because we can hear about it 
and we can poo-poo it at times because, you know, it doesn't really affect us as much. But when you talk to people from out there, it is absolutely real. And just before the break, David, we were talking about the, 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 what I think a lot of people out West are referring to as the, as the unholy connection now between the liberals and the NDP. That's how they would see it. That, okay, how in the world, when pipelines are the things that Albertans and people in Saskatchewan and other prairie areas, how, when these are the things we feel we need to make our economy go again, You've got these left parties who have run entirely or heavily on the fact that we're all about the environment. And how in the world do they possibly now give the thumbs up to these without losing all the base of their progressive support and having it migrate to someone else? They've got to be terrified of letting this happen. Yes, it's a huge issue for the NDP and the Greens. The Greens obviously are never going to budge. The NDP will never budge. The question is, will the Liberals and maybe the Conservatives get together to build some pipelines, you know, to see TMX through? And, you know, the thing for people in Ontario to think about is that um, we could shut down the entire Canadian oil and gas industry tomorrow, not not leave leave all the rest of our oil in the ground and forever, just leave it there. And it would make not one difference on climate change. And the reason is simple. The world is hungry for oil. And if we, if we don't supply the world with oil, and whatever you think about climate change, whatever you think about oil, the, the fact of the matter is if we do not, if Canada does not supply the world with oil and gas, other people will. Saudi Arabia will. The United States has doubled its oil output in the last decade. They're just chomping at the bit. They love it if Canada doesn't produce oil and gas. They're ready to fire up, make make more oil and gas, produce more oil and gas, and take over that world market. So we can we can feel virtuous and we can people can feel like, oh, we're taking action on climate change by stopping pipelines, but it's a fallacy. It's a it's a it's a it's a naive and foolish uh, dream um, that, that we could have that kind of impact. I think Albertans really do want to take action and are taking action on climate change. The oil companies themselves are doing all they can to reduce emissions. And right now, the um, new projects, the emissions per barrel are lower than, than uh, the U.S. average for emissions per barrel. So there's huge progress being made and it's continued to be made in the oil sands on emissions. But we're just asking the rest of Canada excuse me, to be realistic, Canadians to be realistic. Like, we can play a role in climate change, but it's not going to be by shutting down the oil sands. That's foolishness. You know, Ontario has 60% of its energy produced by nuclear reactors. Um, carbon-free. That's where we should be heading. We have liquid natural gas in Alberta and uh, BC. If we export that to China, we can replace their coal plants. China uses more coal in China alone than the rest of the world combined. If we can just replace some of that with, you know, our liquefied natural gas, that's got half the emissions. So there are some reasonable things and smart things that we can do, but the stupid thing to do, uh, you know, and, and I don't want to call all the environmentalists who really believe so strongly in shutting down the pipeline stupid, but that's what it amounts to. The stupid thing is to think, oh, we'll just shut down these pipelines and that'll make a difference because it won't make an iota of difference. The last night as the election was going on, we started to see trending on Twitter this hashtag of Wexit, uh, play on Brexit, yeah. but certainly with Western exiting. The idea of Western separatist, separatism growing, I mean, how realistic is this? Is this a real thing? You know, I, I, it's Alberta can't. Let, let, let's be honest. Alberta has two choices here, and the, the, clearly the best choice for Alberta is to do what we've always done: hunker down within Confederation, 
and try to work with our, our Canadian partners. Albertans are strong Canadians, devoted to Canada. Like, devoted to Canada, period. Not like with, like with Quebec, where, well, if Canada works for us, we'll stick, we'll stick around. But no, we are, we are Canadians. And I don't think Albertans want to separate. Plus, if, we, if it's just Alberta, well, then we're like, you know, Kyrgyzstan. We're a <laughs> landlocked country in the middle of nowhere. We can't. We'll, we'll be giving the environmentalists exactly what they want. That we will landlock our own oil. But that. But that said, David. That said, if this, if this government, this mishmash government, or whatever we're going to see happen and work, if the moves are made to do even more to prevent oil and prevent pipelines and all the rest, I, I from what I'm hearing, I can't believe that people are going to go. Well, we're still going to happily just try and figure this out. The anger oh, well, is going to build, isn't it? It will build. I think plan A is to work within Confederation. Plan B is, I think, like if we're completely rational about it, it's to join the United States. Alberta would have a choice between Canada and the United States. And, and so plan B doesn't sound too appealing to me. I even, I'm hesitant to mention it, but that is the real, like if you're taking a hard-headed look at it. That's the other option for Alberta in the end. And um, I think we're far off from that. I think that... Um, like I said, if we can get these three pipelines built, Keystone, Line 3, and TMX, I, I think that this issue is going to fade uh, dramatically. I only have a few seconds left here, but one more thing on this one. Uh, I expect, I think most people expect that a minority government generally don't last all that long, a year, maybe two, let's say. Yeah. I don't know how many pipelines are going to be built or even green li- green lit before then. What do you think the chances are that there is a whether it's a separatist party or just an Alberta party that would kind of be the equivalent of the block only for Alberta in place before that next election happens? You know, I don't think it's going to happen, but it could happen. I mean, right now, I think the most prominent conservative voice in Canada is Jason Kenney in Alberta, the premier of Alberta. And he's definitely not pushing Albertans in that direction. And because we have such a strong and forceful leader who is also a strong Canadian patriot in Kenny. I don't think, so we might get that party, but I don't see it taking off. It is, uh, it is a fascinating thing to be watching for because, uh, as I said, here in Ontario, I don't think that we really understand it, and, uh, but it is certainly real, this anger. And uh, go read David Staples, Federal Election, A Kick in the Shins to Alberta. Read that one. It's on the Edmonton, Edmonton Journal and probably about 4,000 other pieces that have been written in the last 24 hours about the way things have been going. Uh, David, really appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks for talking with me. Bye-bye. Uh, g- give it a read. It, you know what? You want to broaden your understanding of what's happening in this country and it is it is real it is real we may poo-poo it but it is real you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml want to wrap up this election talk uh we had five local ridings as you know uh winners bob bertina for the liberals he won in hamilton east stony creek philomena tassi who won in the riding of Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas, which is shortened to HWAD, which I still think has to be changed because that sounds ridiculous. Um, David Sweet in Flamborough, Glenbrook, which is Flamgland, which sounds like some sort of 80s hairband. Again, we got to change some of the names of these ridings. Uh, Matt Green in Hamilton Center. And my next guest, Scott Duvall, who won on Hamilton Mountain for the NDP. Uh, congratulations, Scott. Well done. Scott, I appreciate it. Uh, and of course, never any doubt for you, right? You knew from day one that this was going to happen. Well, I, 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 I never take it for advantage, that's for sure. You always run as though you're losing. Um, I, I did have a lot of uh, great reception at the door, and I'm, I'm honored 
and uh, I feel privileged to represent the people of Hamilton Mountain, uh, as I've done for years. That said, and, and good for you for taking that position, but that said, this has been about as solid an NDP riding as there is lately. I mean, since 2006, you have been solid orange. So, I mean, it couldn't. you, you have to know going into it, you've got a pretty good chance. Yes. Uh, we, I mean, it, it's a, you know, a great um, uh, working town uh, up in the mountain here that we have a lot of people with labor. Uh, and uh, but it's you know the demographics are changing, but um, they still have the confidence in me because of what I was ward councillor, um, knowing that what I was my work that I was doing, and then I wanted to keep it orange. Um, that's the way I feel personally. Uh, but, but I thought uh, we did a great job, and, and it's just not about me. It's about all my volunteers and the people behind me, and, and the voters that had the confidence in me. Scott, what's, what I find really interesting about about your riding and also the other four in the Hamilton area, we saw lots of change across the country. Um, from coast to coast, there were areas, some stayed the same, but there was a lot of change. Yet here in Hamilton, your percentage of votes stayed basically the same from 2015. The other four ridings in Hamilton all stayed with the same parties. Um, why is it? Why is Hamilton seemingly so locked into its political positions where other places seem much more pliable? Well, I, I, I think in Hamilton, I mean, because we're such a big, huge area, rural and urban, um, you, you know, when you go to the rural areas, you have more, you know, there's more conservatives. But in, in, in this, the actual town itself, in the city, the inner city, and, and the, uh, the, the new new places like Waterdown and uh, uh, Stony Creek and everything. It's the actual working people. So there is a lot of liberals. They have their home base. Um, the conservatives have their home base, and we have ours. And we we have a lot of in Hamilton, not just downtown, but up in the mountain, uh, of people that are struggling, and they really believe in the NDP trying to help them um, and making things better to be their voice, to make sure that they're not excluded. They want to be included um, in, in any kind of... Uh, uh, resources that the government can give. During the Cable 14 debates that were done, uh, the Spectator Cable 14 debate, you said something that we've discussed on the show since then, uh, and I must say it was one of the most refreshingly honest things I've heard a politician say in a long time. I don't even know if you intended to say it, but it was very refreshingly honest, and that was you were asked about bringing financial federal money into your riding, and you said, you know, that you get money if you're in the government, and they generally give those kind of big money pots to the the ridings that they have the power in. Um, that said, I'm wondering if you are feeling a little different about that today, because of the position the NDP finds itself in now as the party that's going to be working, presumably, with the Liberals, that that may open a few more vaults of cash for you and for Hamilton Mountain? Well, it, it, it will open up the, the door. But what it is, Scott, it, it, it becomes um, in behind the scene. When I, when I answered that question, and it was an honest question because it, it does happen. That's the way it goes. Um, and I want to be honest about that. But in behind the scenes, we, um, the opposition parties, we write letters we, to the minister. We, um, we advocate for that money. We do everything we can possibly. And, and, the, and, and when, what happens is when the money does flow, um, that majority party will not, you know, ask us to come into the photo op or anything. They want to take credit for it. Um, but in behind the scenes, we do the work. And we do most of the dirty work of it. Um, 
so I, I think now that uh, now that we have a minority government, and I know we're I, I want to work hard with the other parties, and that we're going to get some credit for this. You ready to um, now? We don't know how long this is going to last. Uh, are you ready to get back right back on the campaign trail if such a thing happened? I'm I'm ready. I mean, I'm solid to this party. I'm solid to the people of Hamilton Mountain. And if anything happens, I will certainly uh, make my my big decision to represent those people. Scott Duvall, the no, I was going to say new, not really new, the incumbent, returning incumbent for Hamilton Mountain, uh, who won again last night. Scott, congratulations and thank you for the time today. Thanks, Scott. Uh, by the way, we did, uh, through the day today, uh, Liz, who d- produces for Bill's show and Scott's show and me, uh, we reached out. Bob Bertina was on with Bill this morning. We did reach out to Matt Green. We reached out to Philomena Tassi, I'm told. We reached out to um, David Sweet. They were unable to make it onto the show today. We wanted to make sure uh, and wanted to get Scott on as well. So we have reached out to the candidates, and hopefully in the days ahead, we will be able to get all of them here on CHML. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So I want to get to this story because I, I have found this to be a really fascinating thing and it's it's kind of quieted a little bit from what it was last week, but it's a story that goes to a lot of bigger issues about politici- uh, politicians, about athletes, but not just athletes, artists, actors, celebrities, we look to these people to entertain us, to do these other things that they can do with amazing skill, with amazing talent. But when you have that kind of platform, oftentimes you decide that you want to use that to make a point. You want to use that to flex your muscles with the things you believe in, politically or otherwise. We've seen many times, especially in American elections, although we've seen it here too, where actors or artists or athletes get behind certain candidates or are against certain candidates. Well, what we saw the other week was the Houston Rockets and LA Lakers went over to China for some exhibition games, preseason exhibition games. And the general manager of the Houston Rockets sent out a tweet in support of those fighting for democracy in Hong Kong. You know what's going on over in Hong Kong. China is cracking down on them. And the general manager of the Rockets said, I'm, I'm behind you. Well, that kind of blew up. The NBA suddenly has a full crisis on its hands because China, China doesn't really like it all that much when you criticize it. And all of a sudden now, this market, this giant market that is the has the potential for a lot of money for NBA basketball and NBA players, billion people there, uh, they're mad. Well, LeBron James then sends out a tweet. My team in this league, this is what he wrote, my team in this league just went through a difficult week. I think people need to understand what a tweet or statement can do to others, and I believe nobody stopped and considered what would happen. Could have waited a week to send it. Hmm. Uh, LeBron James has been heavily, heavily, heavily criticized. This was not the first tweet, by the way. He had sent others. Heavily criticized for seeming to defend China and not support those in Hong Kong who are fighting for their democracy. Let me bring in Rick Zamperin from 900 CHML, covers sports. Um, it, it's, it's one of those topics we see it all the time, well, not all the time, we see it often, Rick, with athletes or with other people who decide that, you know, now that I have this platform, I want to use it. But we also hear a lot of time people say, you know what, just play the game. Play the game, don't worry about doing this kind of stuff. Where do you stand on this? Should athletes, should celebrities be getting politically active or should they stay in what some people would say is their lane or their area of expertise. You know what, I, I think, 
you know, we, we are so accustomed to, you know, hearing those kind of 10-second sound bites after a game or after a practice, and they're loaded with cliches, that when we do hear from uh, more or less the high-profile athletes, and LeBron would certainly be in that equation, when they do speak their mind on, you know, an issue that's not sports-related, I think we take notes because more often than not, it's a well-thought-out, uh, you know, uh, theory or, or action plan or statement. Uh, in this case, I think two wrongs didn't make a right in terms of, you know, the Houston uh, Rockets GM is, and, and, and LeBron's comment. But I think, I think yeah, it, they're allowed to. They should because, you know, the whole freedom of speech, you know, they have a platform. They have so many followers on Twitter and Instagram and their fans. They, LeBron James basically speaks for all NBA players. You know, when he opens his mouth and talks about any issue, really, I mean, he's speaking for the entire brethren. So, yeah, long story short, to answer your question, yes, athletes should be given the opportunity to express their views on, on any topic they want. That said, and I agree with you, by the way, I, I'm very much in favor, as anyone who listens to this show knows, I, I am a free speech absolutist almost. That Yeah, if you've got an opinion, fine. But the next, the follow-up question is this then, Rick, if you say something that tends to rankle a lot of people or that many people disagree with or think that you are ill-informed, should you somehow get a pass then from vigorous criticism from people if they think that you have said something entirely stupid? Uh, no, you should not get a pass because, yes, stupid is stupid. And <laughs> you know what? If you uh, are an athlete and say something offside or something that, uh, you know, uh, ruffles the feathers of, of people who have an opposing view, you know, that is healthy. But, you know, let's take in consideration this example here where billions, that's with a B, of dollars are at stake. And, you know, both the GM of the Rockets and then LeBron's tweet just added fuel to that fire. And I think now that, uh, you know, the NBA is fully, uh, you know, involved with, uh, you know, developing its game, uh, you know, overseas, and especially in China, where billions are at stake, uh, you know, LeBron should have just, he should have waited a week on his tweet, uh, if anything, because it was more critical of, uh, you know, what the Chinese were doing. And I understand that, you know, he's going to believe what he believes. And I know that Commissioner Adam Silver has, you know, defended LeBron for his right to say what he wants to say. Uh, but that just added a little bit of kerosene out of the fire, and it just was not a good move. Uh, by the way, there was a, a great piece, a really interesting piece in the U, in USA Today. Uh, it was a column. Uh, let me read the headline here. Let me just get back to the top where I can read you the headline. Uh, LeBron James undermines values he's espoused in most disgraceful moment of his career. It was by Dan Wolken, and he wrote this. Uh, when after LeBron sent out a tweet, he goes, right on, LeBron, millions in Hong Kong are fearful their entire way of life is about to change. And thousands upon thousands of protesters are risking their lives to make a stand for freedom in their future. Why would Maury, that's the general manager of the Rockets, think about them when your preseason vacation and your bank account is at stake? How selfish of him. If only money, <laughs> if only Maury had done what you did Monday, LeBron, and tacitly admit the only thing that really matters is your ability to sell shoes and market Space Jam 2 in a country of 1.4 billion, we could have had an intellectually honest discussion about doing business in China and the cost of free speech in a country where only propaganda is tolerated. Here's the thing about this that I, I, I find so interesting. I am absolutely, as I say, in favor of free speech. But man, if you are going to launch into it and you have the profile LeBron James does, uh, you really, you know, while you or I or a lot of people listening could send out a tweet and, you know, whatever, who cares? 
he has such an enormous platform that when he speaks, people really do listen. And you better be darn sure you know what you're talking about. Exactly. And as I said before, I mean, he's speaking for all players, being, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest player of his generation. Uh, you know, fans look to LeBron of, you know, what's he going to do next? What is he wearing now? What's he endorsing? Uh, what's he, you know, what does he think about this issue? And more often than not, I think throughout his career, he's done a fine job of, you know, expressing his views, but not kind of crossing that line. This one crossed the line. And, and, and I don't know. Yeah, he, he can say what he wants to say. I think he should have read the temperature in the room to uh, and, and, and just not send out his tweet or, or made his views known at that point. I think it's, you know, with all this money at stake, that's all fine and well. But when you're having, you know, people dying for uh, what they think is right in Hong Kong, I think LeBron's got to, you know, just realize the situation and uh, you know choose his words a lot more carefully. I don't understand honestly why, even though again I'm I'm supportive of if he wants to, but I don't know why he would feel that this was a good one to dive into. Period. Because there's really no win for him in this one. I I, I don't see. I like I if his agent his agent must have had an aneurysm when he saw this. Because you're looking at this going, how how do we, there's no upside to him for this, either way. It was really, I think it was, I don't know if it was a mental lapse, but I think it was a selfish moment to say, hey, listen, you know, we're, we're here, we're trying to, you know, continue to grow the game in a foreign market. It's, you know, it's a very healthy market with a lot of money at stake. You know, don't ruin it for us, uh, you know, GM of the Rockets. Uh, just let us play the games and let the money continue to roll in. Um, and, and I think that kind of maybe got to him to say, hey, I got to say something because, you know, we're out here, you know, uh, you know, playing the game that we love and getting paid handsomely to do it. Uh, uh, you know, this tweet might jeopardize that. I think it was a real selfish moment on his part. But he is also a guy over recent years who has been exceedingly quick to tweet and to make statements about human rights in the States. He's been very quick to criticize yeah. police and Donald Trump and others. And I'm like, wait a second, how do you, how do you say we believe that police are this or Donald Trump is that, but then say, but China, we're, you know, we're not going to come down too hard on you in China. We, you know, let's not get too upset about the whole Hong Kong thing, which is, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. it just, it, it's incongruous with the two sides. They don't work. It's a huge double standard. No doubt about it. All right. Let's, um, Jump around. We've got a few more things I want to get to. Uh, Toronto Raptors, they get going tonight as this sort of got this topic going in the first place, kicking off their championship run. Uh, let's break this down. The percentage the Toronto Raptors repeat as NBA champions this year? 0.9%. <laughs> You're an optimist. I was going to say just flat out zero. <laughs> well, you never know. I mean... Are they a playoff team? Yes, they should be. Uh, they're, they may be an injury or two away from not being a playoff team, depending on, you know, if and who gets hurt. They have a veteran-laden team. You know, Kyle Lowry is back. He is what he is. You know, he's an all-star caliber uh, guard. Uh, Marcus All, I think, is a decent big man up front. Serge Ibaka, whether he's coming off the bench or, or starting, provides not only some energy, but a little bit of athleticism and that veteran presence. Pascal Siakam, you know, after signing a you know mega mega million dollar contract, uh, better bring it, and I think the pressure will be on him to do so. Even though the deal doesn't officially kick in until next year, but still, he's he's anointed as the next star in Toronto. And then you have other pieces like Norman Powell and Fred VanVleet and all these other guys who are going to have to chip in to make sure a they stay uh, stay healthy and b they are consistent enough in terms of being in a top four 
position in the East to at least get a home playoff date in round one. And once you get in the playoffs, you just don't know what's going to happen. Strange things, as we've seen in many NBA playoff series, happen. Uh, but I think they're going to have to at least get a, you know, a top four finish um, to to host that first round, and then and then who knows? I, I don't see them going to the, even to the East final. Maybe win win round one if they get lucky. Maybe a second round playoff series victory. But I I really think they're a one series win and done kind of team in the playoffs. Or a bunch of pieces that are traded for draft picks and parts uh, as we get closer to the deadline, depending on yeah. how things are going. Because Mark Gasol and Serge Ibaka and those guys, I mean, those are those could be useful pieces for a team. We saw that last playoff. We saw how useful those guys could be, and you could reload your team and restock. Without a doubt. And, and those two guys that you mentioned are free agents. You know, they, they signed Kyle Lowry to a one-year extension, and sure, they could trade him too, but you know, to trade a um, uh, you know a guy of his stature to a team, unless they you know that other team really has a need at the guard position because you know maybe one of their star players has gone down and they're still in a championship kind of hunt, that might happen. But I don't see that. You know, I think Kyle uh, you know ends his career in Toronto. But yeah, as you mentioned, if this team is around 500 or maybe just a bit over, maybe just a bit under uh, at around the trade deadline. Um, yeah, Masai Ujiri will probably uh, you know pull the trigger and make some deals. I'm going to be sure. I'm going to be fascinated to see how they do with their TV numbers this year, which is really the only way we can gauge interest in them. Because uh, on Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember which day it was, the Larry O'Brien Trophy, the championship trophy they won, was in Kitchener, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean I didn't even hear about it until Saturday or Sunday. My dad went to t- get a picture with. There was an hour and a half long line to get in to get a picture with this trophy. I mean the wow. the interest right now, Rick, is through the roof still. But if what you describe, if they are suddenly a 500 team or below, or they play a few of these really good teams and get bombed, I'll be interested to see how much that championship has as far as a lingering effect on long-term fandom, or if this is what we've seen with the Jays a little bit right now, which is, you know what, wait, call me back when you guys are winning again and I'll come back. But in the meantime, I got other things to do. Yeah, and that's the biggest question for any sports franchise is, uh, you know, we've won the championship. Uh, now is kind of the afterglow. Uh, you know, I would give it at least uh, until the new year, maybe maybe even February when that trade deadline rolls around. Uh, I think the interest will still be there, TV numbers-wise, attendance-wise at Scotiabank Arena. But as soon as something happens, either A, uh, you know, the fans realize they're not the powerhouse team that they were last year, and I, I think they're going to be, you know, way far off that. And B, if some pieces start to get dealt, you know, new guys come in. You're gonna have to, you know, uh, learn who these new guys are, uh, new guys are, and you know, change your, you know, allegiances to, you know, to some players or whatnot. Uh, I think that's going to be the true test. And all those kind of fans on the periphery, who are Raptors fans but not maybe the hardcore, uh, you know, men and women, I think they'll probably, you know, just linger off to other things. So that'll be the true test to midseason how this team's doing and how the fans kind of react to that. If you were a fan and you could have tickets for one of two games, which game do you want? Do you want tonight's game where they raise the banner and you get your your imitation championship ring? and you're there for all the celebration, or do you want to be there the night Kawhi Leonard comes back? For me, I would rather be there for the Kawhi Leonard game. Uh, you know, it, it's great to see a championship banner there. It's, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime type of thing. Probably. But <laughs> I, I think the electricity, yeah, <laughs> the electricity in the building when Kawhi comes back, I think is just going to be, and I think it's going to be a good electricity. I mean, they're not going to boo him. He's going to get a standing O, no doubt about it. I just, uh, you know, and he should be heralded for what he did with Toronto, but I just think that's going to be a game where 
the fans are going to be really so much more into it. I mean, tonight they're playing New Orleans. Zion Williamson isn't on the court. He's injured. He's out for you know five, six weeks. Uh, I think that game against Kawhi is going to be something special. Yeah, he'll be he'll be cheered until he puts up 60 on the Raptors, and then suddenly <laughs> it's like, what just happened? Or, you know, the Clippers say, you know what? Uh, this load management oh. has Kawhi off against Oh, Kawhi. could you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine if they pulled a load management move on that game? That would be great. That would be so NBA. <laughs> it really would. And, and like the load management thing, it's interesting that load management is not something that has caught on in any other sport. I've heard it a little bit in hockey, but not to the degree, not even close, that we heard it last year. With well, the they're not—they're not sitting Marner for a game and Tavares. For, I mean, Tavares is hurt, but you're, they're not saying, "Okay, you know what? We got back-to-back games." So, Austin Matthews, you sit out today for load management, which is what they did with Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi, yeah. The only—the only, the only uh, player that I've heard it for is Frederick Anderson uh, or any kind of starting goalie. It's, you know, the load management factor. We can't start this guy. Fair enough. Every game, we're going to have to, you know, uh, play the backup here, there, and everywhere. But I mean, that's been the case in hockey for you know decades now that's not a new thing at all not even in football though uh, you know and, and i know football no, they yeah. just play once a week so it's a little bit different but still it's it's, it's interesting uh just got a couple minutes left here uh, oh and by the way they are giving out these uh, imitation championship rings to all the fans today and i could not help but think that they are ripping off the hamilton bulldogs because after the bulldogs won the calder cup in 2007 if you remember in the first game that fall everybody got a calder cup imitation ring i think i still have one at home somewhere someday i'll put it on ebay and make 10 <laughs> make 10 dollars or something uh world series also begins tonight a lot of things going on leafs tonight yeah, raptors yeah. tonight world uh, world series tonight the starting pitchers for houston and washington for the first 3 games for Houston, Zach Greinke, $34.5 million a year. Justin Verlander, $28 million. Garrett Cole, $13.5 million, who will go up considerably next year. $77 million in starting pitchers. Washington, Steven Strasburg, $40 million. Max Scherzer, $37.5 million. Patrick Corbin, $13 million for $90 million. $167 million in starting pitchers for the first three games. Should we assume then that this is going to be a low-scoring pitching series? I would think so. I mean, if I were to lay down money on, you know, an over and under, I'm probably picking the under every time. And, and, and that's, you know, both teams have, you know, some pretty good hitters on their side as well. But these pitchers have only had amazing regular seasons, but they've continued that into the playoffs. I mean, Garrett Cole has not lost since, I think it's March 25th. And the Astros are 16-0 and in games that he started since then. It's, and he hasn't given up a lot of runs, striking out at least 10 batters every game. Verlander has been just as good. Um, you know, Zach Greinke's kind of had his ups and downs, but he had a great regular season split between, uh, you know, his previous team and now and now Houston. And you know, Washington is the same thing. Max Scherzer can go out and throw a no-hitter any any day he wants, really. It's unbelievable how, you know, effective he is on the mound. You mentioned Corbin, uh, Steven Strasburg. All of these guys are elite-level pitchers. They could be aces on any staff. Uh, so, yeah, I'm expecting this to be – you know, a three-two, a four-two, a two-nothing. You know, final score for every you know box score in the World Series, and I love it because I love great starting pitching. Uh, I see. I'm not sure that that's exactly what everybody wants to see. That everybody wants to see a two-one or three-to-two game. I think that people. I, I still think people would like to see an eight-seven wild game, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I I suppose if you're a fan of the team, you just want to see them win. You don't really care. 
No, that's a great point. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, you remember the old, I think it was the Nike commercial, Chicks Dig the Long Ball, yep. Tom Glavin and, and Greg Maddox. The home run is great. And, you know, those are record 6,776 home runs this year, obliterated the previous record of two years ago by like five or 600 home runs. I mean, it wasn't even close. So, yeah, home runs are exciting. Runs are exciting. But I think great pitching, great defense, great base running, um, all, all these things make baseball so exciting so yeah if there's an 8-7 game in there i wouldn't be surprised because those things happen from time to time and that would be exciting but if i had my druthers you know a, a good 3-2 ball game is all i need all right last thing we got to go uh we are obviously going to be a little biased around here however jose altuve hits the home run the walk-off home run against the yankees to get houston into the world series B- which is the bigger home run more dramatic home run. Which is the home run that will go down in baseball lore more? That one or Bautista's home run a few years ago? Didn't get them to the World Series, but it certainly was a, and it wasn't a walk-off, but it was certainly memorable. Which one is the, which one will baseball fans 10 years from now remember? Bautista or Altuve's? Yeah. <sighs> I would have to go with Bautista for the simple fact that not only was it a tremendous home run, but the bat flip is still being talked about today. Uh, and so, you know, as great of a home run Altuve was, and yeah, it was in the ALCS to send them, you know, to the World Series, and yes, it was against the Yankees, um, I still have to believe that Bautista, because of the epic flip, uh, is still probably going to be the, the more talked about home run. Yeah, the epic flip and everything that led up to it in the seventh inning. I mean, I agree with yeah. you. I just, yeah. I, I bet you if you ask that question in Houston, they may have a different answer. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we will see. We will see. Rick Zamperin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.